Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Your Bibles with me this morning, please, and turn to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Now, Jonah is one of 12 books in the Old Testament that are designated as minor prophets. For many years, I had the privilege of serving in children's ministry and youth ministry. I used to challenge boys and girls to see if they could be faster than I was in reciting the order of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nehemiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and many boys and girls beat me on the race. I used to pay them a dollar, but I've gotten older and I'm getting wiser. So we're in the book of Jonah, one of the minor prophets, and the minor prophets are not minor because they're short. Now, many of them are short. They're not minor because they're short as opposed to the major prophets. The major prophets are called major prophets because the expanse of their prophecy is far broader. The minor prophets narrow in on specific prophecies of God to specific people groups, and so it is this morning that we turn to the book of Jonah, and the focus of this particular prophecy is the people group of the Assyrians as Jonah is commissioned of God to go to the capital of Assyria, the place called Nineveh. Jonah is a book that often comes under attack by those who are skeptical about the Bible. They look at the book of Jonah and they say, well, there's 66 books in the Bible. Which one of those books might be the weakest in the chain? If perhaps we can attack that particular book and uh, deny its inspiration, its inerrancy, then the rest will fall apart. We take the book of Jonah very seriously, and we take the book of Jonah very seriously because Jesus Christ, our Savior, affirmed the veracity of this book when in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, Jesus prophesied that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, even so the Son of Man would be three days and three nights in the earth. Most of us become familiar with the book of Jonah in our childhood. But the reality is the book of Jonah is a very adult book. This adult book helps us to understand the disobedience of the children of Israel. God had said regarding the children of Israel in Isaiah 43 and verse 10, Ye shall be my witnesses, saith the Lord. Sadly, as is evidenced in the book of Jonah, in response to God's command to be witnesses, the children of Israel were not exactly, well, we'll say it this way, they did not want to be the the first Jehovah's Witnesses. They were not interested in witnessing of Jehovah to the rest of the world. And Jonah reminds us also of the disobedience of the church because to us has been given the commission of the Savior to be the light of the world. And unfortunately, many of those who call themselves Christians today are more willing to hide their light under a bushel. The book of Jonah helps us understand the compassion of God. It's a very adult book. It helps us to understand the compassion of God for Jonah. The 17th verse of chapter 1 tells us that God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah up. That's God's grace and watch care over his disobedient prophet. But it also tells us of the compassion of God for Nineveh. Just before the service started, I had a conversation with Barbara Kennedy, who's in our service this morning, and she reminded me that she is an Assyrian and proud of her heritage. And I shared with her what a blessing it is to open the book of Jonah and see God's kindness toward the Assyrian people. That though they were continually coming down from Assyria to attack 
In that time, northern Israel, yet God would send a prophet from Israel to share with them the necessity of repentance before his judgment would fall. Again, many people look lightly on the book of Jonah. They say it's a great fish story. Some people have said Jonah is the original chicken of the sea. Others, others say, you know, Jonah, he's just one of those guys that went a little bit over, overboard, but boy, did he become a whale of a preacher. If you're looking, I know, I know. I can't help myself sometimes. If you're looking for an outline of the book of Jonah, the first chapter of the book of Jonah, it talks about Jonah's protesting God. He protests God's will for his life. In chapter 2, Jonah's praying to God, this time from the belly of the great fish. Jonah chapter 3, Jonah's preaching in Nineveh, and they are coming to repent. In Jonah chapter 4, Jonah's pouting. He becomes the gourd head of the book of Jonah. In his commentary on the book of Jonah, Dr. John Whitcomb said, as perhaps no other book in the Bible, Jonah is a book for our day and for the tremendous challenges of our generation. We're going to see why this morning as we open our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1 and we discover Jonah's wake-up call. Follow along, please, as I read, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship unto the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said to him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil has come upon us? What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? And what country, and what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said to him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he told them. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into his word. This morning, that you'd use your word to challenge our hearts. We thank you for a book that we know well. We pray that the lessons of this book would shine clearly into our hearts this morning and make a difference. Lord, I thank you for your love in sending those who would share the message of love, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If we would turn from our sins and turn to the Savior, we can have everlasting life. We thank you for Jonah and for the experiences of Jonah that give to us an example of the necessity of obedience. We pray today, Lord, that you'd use your word to challenge some heart, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name, amen. When a man decided to go to a Cincinnati Reds ball game with his girlfriend, he knew he was running from the law. He had broken parole, no one knew where he was, 
There was a bench warrant against him because he'd he'd failed to appear in court for a drug charge. He was at a Cincinnati Reds game, 30,000 people around him, and then the kiss cam was turned on. He was there with his girlfriend, and he shared a smooch with his girlfriend that was flashed up on the kiss cam, and before the game was over, he was arrested. His lawyer said, out of 30,000 people in the ballpark that day, my client's the one who gets his picture on the kiss cam, and wouldn't you know, his parole officer was at the game. Many Christians are like the fugitive at the Reds game. They surround themselves with distractions and think that they can blend into the crowd so that God cannot see them. They've come to believe that God somehow is nearsighted and can't see them when they're afar off. They forget that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth and that all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. They forget that God declares Himself to be Jehovah Roy, Jehovah Roy in Genesis 16, verse 13, means He is the God who sees. In the first 10 verses of the book of Jonah, Jonah is a prejudiced prophet who's become a prodigal, and he's about to get a wake-up call. You see, the God who created us, and the God who called us, and the God who commissioned us, and the God who counsels us is a God who has a claim upon us. He has a claim upon every one of our lives. So I have a question that we ask this morning as we look at Jonah's wake-up call. The question is simply this. Are you somehow running from God in some area of your life? Is there some facet of your relationship with the Lord that you know to be out of line? Are you trying to block your ears from the still, small voice of His Spirit? as he seeks to instruct you along the path. Let me invite you to listen very carefully to Jonah's wake-up call this morning. Now, in Branson, Missouri, as well as Lancaster, Pennsylvania, there are theaters that are called Sight and Sound Theaters. The Sight and Sound Theaters do biblical dramas. One of the dramas that was most popular was the drama of Jonah. The drama of Jonah, some of you probably went to see it, It featured a 40-foot whale. It featured 3D effects and many other special effects. They say it was amazing. Over one million people went to see the drama of Jonah. As we come to the first 10 verses of Jonah chapter 1, I'm going to break these 10 verses down dramatically into three acts, if you will. We're going to see in verses 1 through 3 a derelict saint, a derelict saint. And then in verses 4 and 5, We're going to be looking at the distressed sailors. And finally, we're going to see in verses 6 through 10, the discovering spirit. Act 1, the derelict saint. It's interesting to note that the book of Jonah begins with a conjunction. Did you notice it? If you were writing a book, would you start with the word now? Did you know that there are 14 books in the Bible that begin with a conjunction, either the word and or the word now? Why is that? Because God wants us to understand that the revelation that He's providing is part of the whole. That there's an ongoing narrative, if you will, of God's interaction with us, mankind. And so He jumps in with this conjunction to help us be drawn into the story so we understand, listen, that the events 
that are recorded in the book of Jonah are being played out these 2,700 years later right now where we are in someone's life, perhaps in yours. That in our lives, we all have this tendency to have a little bit of Jonah in each of us. You see, many of God's saints are running from God's will. And as they run from God's will, they inevitably find themselves facing off with great storms. Jonah became a derelict prophet. Jonah became a derelict prophet by ignoring God's command. God's will for Jonah could not have been clearer. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah has been given a mission to go to the Assyrian capital, to this place called Nineveh, a great and prosperous city in his generation. Jonah is not a novice prophet. He's an experienced prophet. In 2 Kings chapter 4, we read that Jonah had been on assignment before by God. Jonah was living under the rule of Jeroboam. You'll recall how Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdoms into the northern and the southern kingdoms. Rehoboam being the son of Solomon, Jeroboam being one who would come to the throne. And Jonah living under the rule of Jeroboam would give a very popular, a very populist, a very nationalistic prophecy. Jonah, before being called of God to go to Nineveh, was able to share with all of his fellow countrymen that God was going to enlarge the borders of Israel under the oversight of Jeroboam. Let me say that at that time in his ministry, Jonah was very popular. He was a positive gospel preacher, if you will. But now God comes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I've got a second commission for you. I want you to travel 500 miles away from your home, and I want you to go to a place called Nineveh and preach to the Assyrians, those people that you hate so much. I want you to go there and preach to them that my judgment's going to come if they don't repent. God said, Jonah, I want you to go, and in verse 3 of chapter 1, we realize that Jonah says, no. I'm willing to share all the popular things and all the positive things, but Lord, when it comes to the negative side, I'm just not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. You know, we have some people like that today in the world. They're happy to preach the prosperity gospel, but when it comes to preaching the reality of a place called hell and the reality of sin, the accountability for sin that God holds over us, for the wages of sin is death, there are Many people who abandon that work of God, so it is with Jonah. You see, Jonah was a selectively obedient prophet. He selected to be obedient when it was convenient, but he selected to be disobedient when it was not convenient to him. There's a lot about Jonah that we don't know, but we know this that Jonah had been faithful, had been popular, is known in 2 Kings chapter 4 as a man who's willing to deliver God's message. But when we come to Jonah chapter 1, Jonah is resisting the will of God in his life. He's like the man who's able to say, I really do love my wife. That's easy for me, but it's really tough for me to disciple my kids, so I won't spend much time there. Selective obedience. Jonah's like the fellow who says, you know, attending church faithfully I kind of enjoy that, but when it comes to participating and giving for the work of the Lord, that's a tough one for me. He's like the Christian who says, I could read my Bible, but 
I really have no interest in using the gifts that God has given to me to effectively serve others. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 44, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Jonah, a derelict saint, ignoring God's command, isolating himself from his companions. Again, we don't know a whole lot about the background of Jonah. We know he came from the Galilean region. In fact, he lived and served about three miles away from where Jesus would grow up in the city of Nazareth or the village of Nazareth. I don't know if Jonah's father, Amittai, was still alive at the time that Jonah gets on the ship to go to Tarshish. I don't know if Jonah is married. I don't know if Jonah has children. I don't know if Jonah has brothers and sisters. I don't know if he had a business that he abandoned. Lots that I don't know about Jonah. His social status is kind of a blur for us. But we do know this, that Jonah ran away from the will of God. And when he ran away from the will of God, he was simply saying by his actions, I need my space right now. He so much coveted his space that he would He would buy a ticket to get on a boat and travel 2,000 miles away, as far away from the will of God as he could possibly go. And we read in Jonah chapter 1 that he went down into the sides of the ship. Have you ever noticed how people who want to run from God often try to run alone? Elijah ran from God. He was all alone under the juniper tree when God spoke to him. Peter ran from the Lord. He went out into the night and he wept bitterly. Demas ran from the Apostle Paul, deserting the Apostle Paul. You see, God created us to be communal, if you will. God created us to enjoy companionship. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 reminds us that it's not good for a man to be alone. So listen, listen really carefully. When isolation is preferred over fellowship, It's often because we're spiritually sick. When isolation is preferred over fellowship, it's often because we're spiritually sick. Now, we can blame others for our lack of desire to enter into fellowship. After all, the crowd with whom I gather can get old. We can blame our circumstances. I used to be rejoicing in fellowship with fellow believers, but you know, I've gotten awfully busy and fail to recognize that our decisions are behind often our circumstances. Sometimes we can even blame God. But the truth is, the further away from God we go, the further away from others we will be. Jonah is seeking to run away. We're living in a generation marked by loneliness. and I think it requires an observation to at least say, the further our culture and the further our people get away from God, the more loneliness they're going to encounter. Jonah wanted to be alone. Just this past Friday, the 26th of May, Fortune magazine reported that millions of Americans are suffering from deadly, expensive, a deadly, expensive health issue, one for which we have no vaccine, immunity, or quick cure. It's loneliness. And it quietly permeates every level of our society. Every year, loneliness costs families the healthcare system, the business world, hundreds of billions of dollars. And the article continues that three in five adults in America consider themselves to be lonely. Hey, we celebrate this morning as we come into church that the cure for loneliness is all around us. 
And not only all around us, it's within us. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the author of the book of Hebrews says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much the more as we see the day approaching. We are to walk in the light as he is in the light so that we can have fellowship one with another. Friend, if loneliness sounds good to you, if vacating the place where fellowship is enjoyed has become attractive, it may well be that you find yourself to be in the same situation that Jonah was in. Act number one, a derelict saint. A derelict saint is one who ignores God's commands and isolates himself from his companions. But God gave Jonah a wake-up call. It was a wake-up call that he would never forget. Scene two, the distressed sailors. The distressed sailors. Verse four is very descriptive. In the Hebrew text, it reads like this. The Lord picked up a wind and hurled it at the sea. God certainly has the power to do that. In fact, Psalm 48 and verse 7 says, Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish. The sailors from Tarshish, ancient Spain, they did not know the one true God. They did not know the Creator. They did not know Jehovah God of Israel. They were polytheists. Verse 5 says, They cried, Every man unto his God. The Spirit of God in His grace does not identify the false gods to whom the sailors were crying. Apparently, He does not want us to know the names of those false gods. But God does want us to discover how people who don't know Him often respond when they fall prey to a storm. Those who don't know Jehovah God when they fall prey to a storm They often lift up their hearts and they cry to God, though they don't really know him personally. Verse 5 says, each of the sailors literally, according to the Hebrew text, they each shouted to their God above the waves and above the winds. They were shouting in panic to God. Now, sailors are not commonly known to be men of prayer. (laughs) And they're seldom to be known to be men of prayer who pray in public. But terror has a way of transforming us all into theists. Terror has a way of transforming even the most atheistic mind into being a believer in God. It is said that 7% of the world's population today professes to be atheistic. That shouldn't surprise us. The number one purveyor of atheism is China, And a vast part of the Chinese population, or a vast part of the world's population, rather, lives in China. But where atheism is not forced upon the population, people everywhere cry out to God. Why do they do that? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 gives us the answer in verse 11 where it says, God has set the world, or literally eternity, in their hearts. Did you know that from the time you were born, God placed the knowledge that you will live somewhere forever in your heart. God placed eternity in your heart. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. That's why you can go around the globe, no matter where you go, some deity is worshipped. People are crying out to God, and they're crying out to God in storms because God has given them an innate knowledge of eternity, an innate knowledge of God. 
People don't run away from God when they run into difficulties. They seek to run to God. Everywhere they're crying out, and these men on board that ship, these sailors who didn't know the God of Israel, they lifted their hearts to cry unto God, and they let go of the things that they once valued. This is how people respond when they're going through a storm and they don't know God. Verse 5 says, the mariners were afraid, and they cried every man unto his God. They cast forth the wares that were on the ship. They cast them into the seas. What kind of wares? Well, 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 22 says that the great ships of Tarshish, when they came to trade with Solomon, they carried on board gold and silvery and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. The ships of Tarshish were filled with the great riches of the world. I believe today if we could go and scan the bottom of the Mediterranean, somewhere at the bottom of the Mediterranean, we could find the loot that had been tossed overboard by these very sailors on that boat from Tarshish. As they experienced the anger of God against his disobedient prophet, they were throwing everything overboard. That that would say once valued, they no longer valued. And why is that? Jesus says, what's it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Friend, you may not know Jesus Christ as Savior, and if this morning the Lord has brought you into this service, the good news is this, that Jesus Christ loved you. He came from heaven, the Son of God, the Eternal One, to die upon the cross for your sin. He was buried and he rose again the third day. Perhaps he's allowed you to come into this service to hear this wonderful good news, the gospel, that Jesus rose from the dead, and he's available right now for you to call upon him. You know what? During storms, people who don't really have a relationship with God cry out in prayer, and they throw overboard those things they once treasured. They're no longer all that attractive. They lift their voices in prayer and let go of what they once valued, and they look for help. They look for help often from those who do know God. It's interesting in verse 6 that the shipmaster came to Jonah. We can almost see him as he's plunging through the decks of the ship. Down the stairs he goes. He's being cast about by the waves and he finds Jonah. And he says in verse 6, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Jonah is so sound asleep that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint translation of the book of Jonah actually has the sea captain saying, What are you doing snoring in the midst of a storm? So we do know a little bit about Jonah. We know he had a pattern of snoring. He was snoring in the midst of the storm. Arise, says the ship's captain. Call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. You know, when people are in trouble, they look for help. And often they look for help and find those who do know God. A couple of years back, our neighbor that has become very fond to us was having a heart event, it seemed. And in her heart event, she reached out to my wife. Literally, she came across the driveway and was knocking on the door seeking help. Sometimes it's not a neighbor. Listen, sometimes it's somebody from our community who knows that they're in the midst of a storm and their soul is being torn apart and they come into a church service on a Sunday morning. That might be you today. For the church family that assembles here, listen carefully. 
always, 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 when we gather together with God's people, be looking around for someone who's coming in out of a storm, someone who's walked into the foyer, someone who's seated next to you, who's asking the question of God, why and how can I get through this? Those who are going through storms often look for help, and they find their help in those who really know God. So let's look at the final scene in this story this morning, this great drama that's painted for us. Scene number three we call The Discovering Spirit. You see, as you study the book of Jonah, you discover that it speaks about a great fish four times. And you discover that it speaks about Nineveh nine times. Jonah, his name appears 18 times in this book that bears his name, but the name of God appears 38 times in the book of Jonah. You see, the book of Jonah is about God. The book of Jonah is about our strong, sovereign, searching God who seeks his castaways and captures them and brings them home. Jonah was running and running and running into the arms of God who was waiting for him, even in the midst of the sea. And I discover as I look in these verses the methods that God's Spirit uses to awaken us. God's willingness to capture Jonah is a great proof of his enduring, long-suffering patience and love. Yes, God loved the people of Nineveh. God loved the Assyrians. God loved the Assyrians so much that he sent Jonah, one of his prophets, to go and bring a message to them, a message that would turn his wrath away from them. And God loved Jonah. God loved Jonah so much that he sent Jonah a storm, and he allowed the ship's captain to wake him up so that the prodigal prophet would have his heart touched by the Spirit of God. God sometimes uses providence to capture our attention. God used providence to capture Jonah's attention. You say, what's that? Well, providence, that's the unexplainable, undeniable evidence of the presence of God. Let me say it again. The providence of God is is unexplainable. I can't explain it, but I can't deny it. It's evident that God is here. I can sense it. I can know it. That's God's providence. God was showing his providence to Jonah in a storm, but Jonah could have said, that's a coincidence. But when we come to verse 7, Jonah could not call it a coincidence. For in verse 7, the sailors begin to cast lots. We read in verse 7, they said everyone to his fellow, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. It's like they're drawing straws, or like they're flipping coins or flipping cards. It was a game of chance. Jonah won the lottery. My wife and I have often said we're never going to buy a lottery ticket Sure enough, we buy one, we'll win. I have two problems if I win a lottery. People will be asking, Pastor Phelps, what are you doing buying a lottery ticket? Number two, I'd have to tithe of it. Just kidding. No, I don't buy lottery tickets. Jonah won the lottery. And when the lot fell his direction, Jonah could no longer run. He knew that the finger of God was pointing toward him. Friends, God uses providence to capture our attention. He allows us to go through circumstances that are inexplicable but undeniable so that we can say, Jehovah Roy, thou God seest me. 
God uses questions to stir Jonah's conscience. Verse 8, the struggling sailor begins to pepper Jonah with questions. Listen to what they ask, these questions that stir his conscience. They said to him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil has come upon us. Strike number one, Jonah knows it's his fault. What is thine occupation? Strike number two, Jonah knows he's a man of God, he's a prophet. Whence comest thou? Strike number three, his heart is being laid open. Jonah realizes, I come from the promised land. I come from the nation of Israel. What people art thou? I'm a Hebrew. I'm a son of the promises of Abraham. When God wants to touch a conscience, God doesn't bring accusations. He has a far stronger tool. He brings questions. Where art thou, Adam? God hadn't lost Adam. God wanted Adam's heart to be open. When Saul kept back what he was supposed to sacrifice, Samuel came to him and said, what meaneth the bleeding of these sheep? Boom. Saul knew what it meant. It meant that he'd been caught in his disobedience. God allows questions. The questions of the frightened sailors are falling like hammers on the heart of this wayward prophet, one question after another to strike his conscience. So let's pause this morning. What is the question that stirs your conscience? Is it the question, what did you do? What didn't you do? What did you watch? What did you say? What didn't you say? Where did you go? Who were you with? God uses questions to capture our conscience. We look on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart, and right now He sees yours. God uses providence to capture our attention, questions to stir our conscience. And I see the results of a spiritual awakening in this passage. Jonah's confession begins in verse 9. I'm a Hebrew. Now, nobody would debate that. Quite obviously, Jonah was a Hebrew. But everyone would debate Jonah's next statement in verse 9. I fear the Lord God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land. Now, that's a debatable statement, Jonah. If Jonah feared God, why was he running from God? Jonah acknowledges that his relationship with God was from his birth. Jonah continues to be orthodox in his faith. And so the, the sailors asked Jonah an even more penetrating question. Do you see it there in verse 10? Jonah, why have you done this? Why have you done this? Now, there's a question that can break the heart of a father or a mother, a husband or a wife an employer or an employee, a neighbor, a church member. Why have you done this? What is the result of Jonah's wake-up call? I am a Hebrew. He admits that he's outside of the will of God. He admits that he's running 
from the center of God's will. Hey, are you like Jonah this morning? Are you running from a real, intimate, obedient relationship with God? Perhaps outwardly you're conforming to His laws, but inwardly you know that the reality of that relationship with the Lord isn't what it needs to be. You realize, of course, that the safest place on the planet is smack dab in the center of God's will. Perhaps God brought you here this morning for you to have a wake-up call. The God who created us and called us and commissions us and counsels us has a claim that he places upon us, and it's a claim that cannot be ignored. Don't ignore God's still small voice this morning. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Even be grateful if the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart this morning. Be grateful. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. Come home. The loving arms of the Savior outstretched. His wonderful words are so clearly expressed. Come unto me, come unto me, come unto me. All you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you come home? This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.